0: Everybody open up to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be starting with verse 14. This is the last of the messages to the seven churches. Laodicea. And I don't need to provide a whole lot of historical background on that period in church history because we're in that period in church history. So you know all about it. Okay, we started long, many weeks ago with an introduction to the book where Jesus Christ gives his own outline of the book. When you start to forget about Jesus' outline of the book in Revelation 1, you get into all kinds of mistaken and and, uh, misinformed interpretation. Jesus told John to write the things he had seen. That was the vision of Christ in Revelation 1. The things which are the letters to the seven churches and the things which shall be hereafter. That means after what's talked about in the letters to the seven churches. So we're in that period of the things which are. I've said it once. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. We need to understand that these letters were actual churches in John's day. But beyond that, they are types of churches embodied in these seven. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So these letters are being written to all churches. All Christians of all ages. And beyond that, if you study and look at Ephesus and the progression of Jesus' instruction down to Laodicea, we see the history of the church age from Pentecost until the rapture written out beforehand. Okay, And so Ephesus, the backslidden church, is a picture of the apostolic church up until A.D. 100. History shows this. Smyrna, the persecuted church, was the church under the persecutions of the Roman Empire up until Constantine, A.D. 312, 313. The Pergamus Church, the worldly church, the tolerant church, was the, uh, the church under Constantine when the church married the state and the corruption and in the, in the development of what became the Roman Catholic monster. It goes up until A.D. 609 when the first... Roman bishop was acknowledged as the head or the authority over the church in place of Christ. Then you have the church at Thyatira, the the unrepentant church. That was that ecclesiastical monster that was Romanism in the Middle Ages from about AD 609 until AD 1500. Then you have the Sardis church, the dead church. The church of the Protestant Reformation that had a name that was living but it was dead. It didn't fulfill its ministry. That's about AD 1500 to about 1700, 1750. Then we have the church at Philadelphia, the remnant church. That's embodied in the great revival and missionary movements of the, of the uh, seventeen and 1800s. And then we have the last of the churches today, the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the apostate church. Sometime around the turn of the century, the transition went from Philadelphia being a description of the church in general, even though it too was a remnant to Laodicea as we have it today. And this was sometime around the turn of the century, and I'm going to share with you a little passage from a commentary written in 19... I think it was 1919, concerning the state of the church then. And you're going to be amazed at what this author saw in 1919 as being Laodicea. How much more is it today? So we have actual history written ahead of time in the book of Revelation, just like we have in the book of Daniel, concerning the period of time between Malachi and Matthew. History is written beforehand in Daniel chapter 11. And so that's something that distinguishes the Bible from all other religious books, is God's ability to declare the end from the beginning. To declare things that are not yet so as if they've already been. And so it's more than just a message, it's prophecy. Now you couldn't discern that if you were living in A.D. 300, if you were living in A.D. 500. You couldn't discern that because you were on the wrong side of history. But we're on the far side of history now in 2013 and we can look back and see this play out in the church age. Some people say, well how can you say that the early church fathers didn't teach that this was the church age? Well of course not. How could they know? They weren't living after the fact. They were living in Ephesus and Smyrna, but we can look back and see these things. Okay? And it's amazing how prophecy... uh, In fact, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. And so God writes things aforetime to prove that He is true, and they come to pass exactly as He ordains them to be. So right here, we have... The church at Laodicea. Laodicea is a Greek word that can translate into rights of the people. It literally means rights of the people. The people's rights. It's all about the people, not the will of the Lord. So even in this name is a description of the problem with the church in America today. Of the problem with the church Jesus was writing to in the first century It was all about the people, what they wanted, what they thought was effective ministry, their needs. It wasn't about the will of the Lord. I don't even need to elaborate about how we see that today, particularly in the American church. The American church is an entitlement church. It's a church that's about my way, my ministry, what I think God's love is, what I think the gospel is, the rights of the people not the will of the Lord. It's all about man. There was a period in time many, many, many years ago after the flood when it became all about man in the human race. What did man try to do? He tried to usurp God's authority by building a tower up to heaven, the Tower of Babel. That's not a fairy tale, that's history. In fact, the foundation of the Tower of Babel still exists Outside ba- uh, the old site of Babylon today, there's an inscription on that foundation that was put there by King Nebuchadnezzar that says this is the remains of the Tower of Borsippa, the, tongue, the mighty Tongue Tower. They called it the Tongue Tower. What did God do at Babel? He confused the tongues. That's sitting there even today. Proof that the Bible again is recording accurate history. But what did man try to do? He tried to unite. It became about him under the rule of Nimrod, that wicked king, to try to overthrow God's rule. It was about man at Babel. It will be about man again prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why doctrines like evolution, humanism, atheism, homosexuality, all these man-centered doctrines have not only taken foothold in our schools and in our government, but in our churches. What you see under the kingdom of Antichrist is a repeat of Babel. It's a repeat of man uniting together without God in an attempt to overthrow any notion of God and to set himself up as God. And so you have Babel repeating itself again. That's why I believe the center for Antichrist government at some point in the future will be on the side of the old Babylon. Commercial Babylon. It's called that in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting to see how the United States is involved in Iraq. Iraq is the site of the ancient kingdom of Babylon. It's interesting to see how much money's being poured in there. Something's going on. And it's just coming to a conclusion. The man-centered churchianity of today is Laodicea. It's embodied right there in the name of the church, the rights of the people. Friends, it's not about our rights in the church. When we come to Christ, we give up our rights. We are no longer our own. We are Christ. We are God's. Ministry isn't about what we think works, what we think is effective. It's about what God declares in His Word. It's about His will. When God says that cancer in a church needs to be cut out, it needs to be cut out. It's not about what we think is right or whether or not we're going to hurt somebody's feelings. There's no room for an, an, an entitlement mindset in the church. It stanches the growth and it keeps us from being able to see the will of the Lord or His direction from our lives. That's why we'll see later in this letter how Christ exhorts the church to put true eyesolve in their spiritual eyes that they can see. See, they couldn't see, they were blind. When you are self-absorbed in the church, when you are self-focused, you're blind. You're blind and delusional. You can't even see with spiritual eyes. That's why you'll say one thing and do another. That's why you'll do one thing and then contradict it the next minute later. That's what the church is. There's no room for the entitlement mindset in the church or in the individuals that make up the church. It's not the rights of the people. It's the will of God. And that's why this church at Laodicea was rebuked. There is no commendation here from the Lord. There was even commendation for the wicked church at Thyatira. That ecclesiastical monster known as Romanism. God still had a remnant there. There was still a, a, a commendation, but not here. Not here for the church of today. The Bible talks about this man-centered churchianity in a lot of different places. We can see it in that Old Testament passage from Isaiah chapter 22 that I referenced when talking about Philadelphia. You had man-centered Uh, 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 man-centered advice coming from that that treasurer Shebna to King Hezekiah versus the God-centered advice of Eliakim. In the book of Jude, this man-centered churchianity, this man-centered pragmatism is called the way of Cain. Cain is the embodiment of man-centered ministry. He wanted to come to God on his terms. Why shouldn't God accept my sacrifice? That's what I want to do. Isn't that the way of the church today? It's called the way of Cain. It's called the error of Balaam. Balaam wanted to preach and prophesy what he thought was right. And when he couldn't do it because the Spirit wouldn't allow him to do it, he coaxed the Midianites into causing the people of Israel to sin so that God would have to judge them. Man-centered. It's also called the gainsaying of Korah. Korah was the one that led that rebellion against Moses in the book of Numbers. Well, who says you're supposed to be our leader? We have as much the Holy Spirit as you do. Why can't we lead this nation? Man-centered. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the gainsaying of Korah. The book of Jude talks about that. In fact, Jude wanted to write a gospel account. If you read very carefully the beginning of that book, he wanted to write a gospel account of Christ's life, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but the Lord wouldn't let him. Instead, he wrote... To the saints and said, we must contend for the faith in the face of false teaching. In the face of the way of Cain. The Laodicea is the way of Cain. The church in large part today is the way of Cain. And the remnant is small. I want to read something to you about the church at Laodicea from a book written in 1919 by Clarence Larkin. It's called The Book of Revelation. And he describes this church nearly a century ago in a way that's amazing to me. It could have been written today. This could have been written today. This was almost a hundred years ago. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I think it will kind of give you some insight here on this Scripture. Christ has no commendation for this church, but much to complain of. There is nothing more disgusting or nauseating than tepid water. Tepid means lukewarm. So there is nothing more repugnant to Christ than a tepid church. He would rather have a church frozen or boiling. It was the chilly spiritual atmosphere of the Church of England that drove John Wesley to start those outside meetings which became so noted for their religious fervor. And it was the same chilly atmosphere of the Methodist Church that drove William Booth in turn to become a red-hot salvationist. William Booth is who founded the Salvation Army. Our churches today, now he's, this is 1919. Our churches today are largely in this lukewarm condition. There is very little of warm hearted spirituality. There is much going on in them, but it is largely mechanical and of a social character. Committees, societies, and clubs are multiplied, but there is an absence of spiritual heat. Revival meetings are held, but instead of waiting on the Lord for power, evangelists and paid singers are hired and soul winning is made into a business. The cause of this, lukewarmness, is the same as that of the church of Laodicea, self-deception. They thought at Laodicea that they were rich, but outwardly they were, and outwardly they were, but Christ saw the poverty of their heart. There are many such churches in the world today, that is 1919 folks, more so than in any other period in the history of the church. Many of these churches have cathedral-like buildings, stained glass windows, eloquent preachers, paid singers, large congregations. Some of them have large landed interests and are well endowed and yet they are poor. Many of the members, if not the majority, are worldly, this is funny here, listen to this, they are worldly, card playing, dancing and theater going. Christians. The poor and the saintly are not wanted in such churches because their presence, their very presence is a rebuke. These churches do not see that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If we were to visit such churches today, they would take pride in showing us their building. They would praise the preaching and the singing. They would boast of the character of their congregations, the exclusiveness of their membership, and the attractiveness of all their services. But if we suggested a series of meetings for the deepening of the spiritual life or the conversion of the unsaved, they would say, oh no, we do not want such meetings. We have need of nothing. The church at Laodicea was not burdened with poverty. It was burdened with wealth. The understatement of 1919. Friends, this was a century ago. How much more so today? That's amazing. This problem didn't begin yesterday. It didn't start with President Obama's election in this country. It didn't start with the World Council of Churches. This was already in motion nearly a century ago. Laodicea began around the turn of the century, not only in the church but in the missions movements. And now what we see as evangelism is not going out and preaching after the manner of Jesus and the apostles. It's paying some guy to come in and stir up emotions and get everybody feeling good about themselves for a few nights, and then it goes right back to where it was the day before. That's considered evangelism. And those that do the work of evangelism after the pattern of the New Testament are hated by the church. They're ostracized by the church. It was amazing. I discovered this week through some private message interchange on Facebook that there are people in this community that consider me and our ministry an enemy because of the way we do evangelism. These are people I used to attend church with at a Baptist church. I also came to know that our approach, whatever that means, is problematic. And there are a lot of people that have a problem with it in this community. Well, let me just say this, I don't care. I could care less what some lukewarm, dead, phony Christians say about what what we do in terms of preaching the gospel. I could care less. But that was just a microcosmic picture. It was funny how that interchange happened while I was studying this letter. Because that's the problem. Those of us who are trying to live in community after New Testament simplicity are considered the enemy. Those of us who try to go out and preach the gospel, not to work against those that are already laboring in those fields, but to work with them, we're considered the enemy. People hate the public preaching of the gospel. What does the Bible say? You can call yourself a Christian all day long, but the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that perish, and it's the power of God to those that believe. So if you call yourself a Christian and you have a problem with somebody that is preaching the biblical gospel in the open air, then according to the scriptures, you're perishing. You need to get saved. I'm not talking about a preacher's attitude or the way he conducts himself because I've seen a lot of that out there that's just flat out messed up. But I'm talking about the message. You got a problem spiritually. But that's the church we live in today. Hey, if we're not enemies of someone, if, we're not pro- if someone doesn't have a problem with us, as we try to live for the Lord, then we got a problem because Jesus said it was false prophets who are buddies with everybody. But I just found that interesting how Because of the way we preach and travel and go to the Jew and the Gentile, and we're not all complicated in this big organization, we're considered an enemy by people who are supposed to be brethren in Christ in this community, and our ministry or what we're trying to do is problematic. I don't care. (laughs) But it's interesting, interesting. The city of Laodicea, this is another interesting tie-in to show the amazing uh, nature of the Scriptures. The city of Laodicea was founded in about 250 B.C. by a Syrian king named Antiochus II. And it was named after his first wife. This woman's name was Laodice. Now what's very interesting here is that The very existence of Laodicea and the political uh, events that surrounded that were actually prophesied in detail by the prophet Daniel almost three centuries before it happened. I'm not talking about some general prophecy like Nostradamus that could be interpreted in an umpteen number of ways. But I'm talking about details. And it proves to us that the Bible is not just some book written by random dudes in, a, in, in some village somewhere. There's no way the Bible could contain these things if it was not of su- supernatural origin. In the book of Daniel, I want to turn over there for a minute, Daniel is so tied to Revelation that I'm hoping one day if we eventually finish this book maybe we can do a preaching series on the book of Daniel. But in the book of Daniel chapter 8 verses 21 and 22, Daniel has a vision in this chapter in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So, this would have been before chapter 5 when this happened, when the writing on the wall. And it basically is what would happen with regard to Israel during the Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdoms. See, Daniel is all about the Jewish nation. Okay? What is written was written because it affects the Jewish people, it was Jewish history up until the coming of Messiah. The second time to reign as a king written beforehand. But in the book of Daniel chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, Daniel has this vision of a goat, uh, of a, a ram and a goat, a rough goat. And the angel is interpreting this vision for Daniel. In verse 21, and the rough goat is the king of Grisha. This is Greece. This would have been in about 550 B.C., Two, more than 200 years between the, before the king of Greece overthrew the Persians in, that, in those, one of those great battles of history. The rough goat is the king of Grisha and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Who knows who the first king of ancient Greece was? World famous. Died very young. Alexander the Great. Now, that being broken, that means that first king being broken, wherefore as four stood up for it, or four stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. Who knows what happened to the Greek Empire in 323 B.C. when Alexander the Great died? Anybody know what happened? Great, huge empire that went from Greece all the way to India and included all sorts of things in between. That's why Greek was a common language in the days of Christ, because the Greeks had spread all over the world. What happened to that kingdom? It split how many ways? Four ways. When Alexander the Great died, his great huge kingdom was split between his four generals. Lysimachus, Cassander, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Just like the scriptures foretold. Mighty horn, broken, four kingdoms stood up in its place. This is foreshadowed earlier in the book of Daniel when those four kingdoms, those Gentile kingdoms, are pictured as great beasts coming out of the sea. That leopard that represented Greece had four heads showing the division of the kingdom. And it's particularly two of those divisions. The Seleucids, which is Syria, modern day Syria, was the king of the north, and then the Ptolemites, the king of the south, which is modern day Egypt. It was Egypt and Syria that would become primary in terms of what was happening in Israel. So you had this prophecy about the Greeks and and then what would happen as you go through Daniel and get into chapter 11 is Daniel would trace the history of, the, of the, the king of the north, Syria, and the king of the south, Egypt, as it relates to Israel. He would trace it all the way down to this wicked king who would foreshadow Antichrist. And then he leaps prophetically to the last days, to the ultimate embodiment of this. And so it's very interesting. Daniel chapter 11 in particular traces several hundred years of history with specific prophecy. Things for Israel to look for so that they could rest assured that all the prophecy in this book was directly from God. Sometimes God prophesies things that seem irrelevant to the big picture but they're prophesied in detail so that we can know that the prophecies relevant to the big picture are going to be fulfilled literally and in detail, and that's what you see with Daniel chapter eleven. In fact, Daniel chapter eleven is so specific that scholars try to say Daniel couldn't have written it when, when when it was written. It had to be written afterwards. But the internal evidence points to a Daniel that lived at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, that lived at the time of Belshazzar and King Darius of Persia. There's no one, no way, someone could have those details. Confirmed by archaeology living several hundred years after the fact. So that's the best argument the liberal can come up with is, well, Daniel must not have written it. Well, according to Jesus, Daniel wrote about it. Jesus warned the people of Israel, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken or written by Daniel the prophet, flee. Daniel chapter 11, it's very interesting. This Antiochus II second was married to this lady Laodicea and built this city or founded this city named after her about 250 B.C. Well later, because of some political arrangements, the king of the north, Syria Antiochus, decided to marry the daughter of the king of the south, Egypt, as a political alliance. This woman's name was Bernice. She was the daughter of Ptolemy II. And this marital arrangement brought an alliance between these two kingdoms that came out of Alexander's kingdom, between Syria and Egypt, and Israel was caught in the crossroads. When Ptolemy II died, in other words, this king of the south, when he died, the alliance dissolved. And so this king of the north who built this city, Laodicea, after his first wife, when that one... One persona in that alliance died, the alliance broke. And so what ended up happening was that this Bernice, who was the king of the south's daughter, was removed from the throne and replaced by this Laodice, who was a wicked, wicked woman. She was a Jezebel. When she was replaced on the throne, she had Bernice, the king of the south's daughter, her servants, and her son killed. And then she later poisoned her own husband, the king of the north, Antiochus II, and put her own son, Seleucus II, on the northern throne. These are all things recorded in history. Bernice's brother Ptolemy III came to power after his father's death down south in Egypt and then would invade the king of the north, Syria, to avenge the death of his sister at the hands of this Laodice. Laodice was killed And her son was put to subjection and tribute to the king of the south. So this is what happened in history. And it all kind of surrounded this figure, Laodicea, of whom Laodicea is named after. Now if I read for you Daniel chapter 11, a few verses here. This was written almost 300 years, about 280 years before these things I just shared with you. Listen to this. Daniel chapter 11. Five through nine, And the king of the south, that is Egypt, shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. This was Ptolemy II. And in the end of years they, that is the king of the north, Antiochus II, and the king of the south, shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. That was that marriage. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand, nor his arm, but he shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. What happened? She was killed. Her husband was poisoned. Her servants and her son were killed. And the alliance was dissolved. All of that's written right here. But out of a branch of her roots... Shall one stand up in his estate? Her nephew, I mean, her uh, um, uh, brother-in-law became king. That Ptolemy the which shall come up with an army and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the not her brother-in-law, her uncle. I'm sorry. Shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal against them and shall prevail. This is this, that invasion of Ptolemy the that came and deposed this Laodicea, had her killed, and then put her son to tribute. And shall also carry away captives into Egypt, their gods with their princes and with their precious vessels of silver and gold, and he shall continue more no- years than the king of the north. Ptolemy III outlived uh, this son of Laodice. So you might ask, what in the world does this all have to do with the big picture? Well, it's related to Israel. And it's minute, detailed prophecy that was written almost 300 years ahead of time with regard to a marriage, a battle, tribute, all of these things written ahead of time. And it was all kind of surrounding this person for which the city of Laodicea was named after. If you read all of Daniel 11, it basically traces history ahead of time from the division of Alexander's kingdom all the way down to this quote, Unquote, little horn that is talked about in chapter 8 this is a person in history out of the king of the north out of the, the, the Seleucid kingdom Syria called Antiochus Epiphanes he was that great type of antichrist Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of the north ruled around 160 170 BC and he is known for what is called the abomination of desolation in Jewish history in b c one sixty seven he entered into Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig to Zeus on the altar of the temple and declared himself to be God. This is recorded in the books of First and Second Maccabees, which are in the apocryphal writings. okay The apocryphal writings don 't show evidence of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit; they are books that the Catholics added to the Old Testament. However, they do record a lot of history that took place between Malachi and Matthew, that 400 year period between the Testaments. And so they have some historical value. In fact, when the King James translators produced the first edition of the King James Bible, that 1611 version, the Bible in English, they included the Apocrypha, not mixed in with the Old Testament like the Catholics do. They stuck it between the Testaments, And they very clearly stated that this was not canonical scripture. But we're sticking it here as a historical reference so you can have an idea of what happened during that intertestamental period. So anybody that would tell you that the King James included the Apocrypha after the manner that the Catholics did is a liar. They're either a liar or they're profoundly ignorant. The King James translators never believed the Apocrypha was scripture. They stuck it there just like a study Bible sticks, notes, and maps. I think it was 16:13, the Apocrypha was removed, because people started to use it or scripture or think it was. And Jesus never quoted from the Apocrypha, but it is historical. If you go back and read First and Second Maccabees, it's an interesting read, because it shares about some things that were going on in Israel. But all of this was written down in Daniel before time. Itn't need to be recorded afterwards. It was already recorded. But this Antiochus epiphanes foreshadows the Antichrist and so in this discussion in Daniel you get down to Antiochus and then Daniel leapfrogs to the last days and Antiochus Epiphanes is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist just like John the Baptist was a foreshadowing of Elijah that would come in the last days one of those witnesses just like the birth of Hashbaz to Isaiah's wife the virgin he took to be a wife was a foreshadowing of Emmanuel Jesus Christ who would be born of a virgin. Very interesting and it's also an interesting tie-in to Laodicea because the end of the church age, if we understand prophecy, is the beginning of the tribulation. What is the tribulation? It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It exists for two purposes. God's gonna pour out His wrath and judgment on the world for its wickedness and God's gonna bring Israel to the point of desperation so that they will wake up and embrace Christ as Messiah, the time of Jacob's trouble. All of this was foreshadowed in the intertestamental period between Matthew and Ma- Malachi and Matthew. All of this tribulation where Israel is concerned was foreshadowed. Israel was a flashpoint in the Middle East from about A.D. 400 until the time of Christ. A flashpoint, a crossroads between Syria and Egypt before the coming of Christ the first time. Isn't it interesting that as the coming of Christ today draws near, what is Israel? A flashpoint in the Middle East between who? Egypt and Syria. Look, when you start seeing stuff happen in Egypt and Syria like we've seen over the last couple of years, the entire government in Egypt has changed. You've got the Russians back in the Syrians now. The Syrians stood up to the United States and the U.S. backed down. you got that flashpoint. The coming of Christ is near. History repeats itself, my friends. And these things that were written in Daniel were pointing forward to an ultimate fulfillment of what would happen with Israel before the second coming of Christ. It's not figurative language in the book of Revelation. We're not living in the millennium now. Satan is not bound in the bottomless pit now. The book of Revelation wasn't fulfilled in 70 A.D. It's future. The tribulation's near. We can look at the headlines and see. It's repeating itself. And it's interesting how this is tied not only to this person in history, Laodicea or the city of Laodicea, but today what's happening is tied to the church at Laodicea. You see, the church at Laodicea is the apostate church. The church becomes so apostate that God is done with the church. And He takes out the remnant, the faithful remnant at the rapture, And then he raises up elect out of Israel to finish the job that the church begins. It's all tied together. Not exactly related to this letter in Revelation, but I just thought that was an interesting thing. My main point, though, turn with me to Isaiah. Here's my main point in going back and highlighting these verses from Daniel. My main point, and I preach this on the campuses. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Ricky, will you read that for us? Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. You ought to highlight this in your Bible. You ought to meditate on it. And you ought to keep it at the forefront if you start doubting God and His Word. Remember... So here we've got God saying, I'm God and no, no one else. And then He declares how He can prove it. Here's how I can prove to you that I am who I claim to be. I declare the end from the beginning. I take from ancient times and declare things that are not yet done. You see, God writes history ahead of time. The Word of God, penned by many human authors as instruments in the hands of God. The Scriptures are God-breathed were able to inscribe history before it happened. Daniel 11, the letters to the seven churches, the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, more than 48 details of His life. You can have your religious books, but God says, can they stand up to me? I declare the end from the beginning. There's nothing in the Quran that declares the end from the beginning. The Book of Mormon makes all kinds of claims. You know, the funny thing about the Book of Mormon is it supposedly records a history that was lost. Geographical locations, topography, place names, cities. But yet, none of this is in history. All of the place names, if you want to know where most of the towns in the state of Utah got their name from, they came from the Book of Mormon, where all of these supposed towns and cities existed in North America, and there was supposedly a battle in Elmira, New York on this hill where more than two million people were killed or killed or fought. Now wouldn't you think there'd be some sort of archaeological evidence if there was a great battle that involved two million people? You can still go to Civil War battlefields with a metal detector and find evidence of a battle that involved much less people than that. See the Bible if anything is a history book because the place names mentioned exist today. They've been called exactly what they were called in the Bible. The historical events that are recorded in the Bible have been proved by archaeology to have, been, to have taken place exactly as they were told in the Bible. Place names, time periods, cultures. All of this stuff the Bible talks about in Israel still a part of Jewish culture today. The Book of Mormon doesn't have any of that. They've never been able to find a place named Nephi. Anything that's ever been called that. But yet, there are places in the world today, Bethlehem, Jerusalem. They found the city of Nineveh under the sands in Iraq not too many years ago when they all used to say the Bible was wrong. There was no city of Nineveh. God declares the end from the beginning. He did it, does it with Israel and He does it with the church. And so we can look at the Old Testament we can look at history and see that when God makes prophecy, it's not clouded in symbolism. It's not clouded in... In um, some kind of mythical interpretation. It's not clouded in allegory. It's detailed. And when it's fulfilled, it's fulfilled literally and in detail. So why in the world would Revelation be any different than the rest of the book? Everything about Jesus and His life concerning His first coming was fulfilled literally. So everything about His second coming would be fulfilled literally. Israel became a nation in 1948. That's big. Maybe you could have an excuse for replacement theology. Maybe you can have an excuse for amillennialism prior to 1948, like the Reformers did when they lived in a time when Roman Catholicism dominated the world and they were sure that the Pope was the Antichrist. But you don't have any excuse today. Israel's been regathered into the land. Israel's been regathered into the land. In fact, one of their prime ministers, he's dead now, but he was a figure in their history, a guy by the name of Menachem Begin, That was before my time. I don't know if you guys remember that name in the news. But he supposedly made a speech before he died. And he made this statement. If I'm allowed to be here in Jerusalem when the Messiah returns, I would like to ask him two questions. Number one, have you been here before? And number two, can I see your hands? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Israel's in the land. God's at work. Literal. He declares the end from the beginning. This prophecy in Isaiah, I often preach this on the campuses. And then I go to show how this this statement about God is preceded in Isaiah by two very amazing prophecies. And I just want to share this with you today for apologetic purposes. If you deal with somebody who questions whether the Bible can be trusted, take them to this passage. Okay, here's what God says. And let me show you two examples of that. The first one is in Isaiah forty four twenty eight, 28, just one chapter back. What does God say? This was written about 700 B.C. That saith, that, that's, this is God that saith to the deep, verse 27, be dry and I will dry up the rivers, just like He did with Israel coming out of Egypt. That saith of who? Cyrus. He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Here we have a Persian king, Cyrus the Persian He came to power in the days of Daniel around the time of the the, the lion's den. When would that have been? More than a hundred years later. Who was it that gave the authority for Israel to return to the land and rebuild the temple? Cyrus the Persian. Here we have a king called by name a hundred and twenty years before he was even born. A Persian king, not a Jewish king. But a Persian king, not a king that could have been born in Israel and they could have said, okay, I see this prophecy, let's name him Cyrus. No. A Persian king separated by hundreds of miles of geography and a totally different culture. God declares the end from the beginning. Another one, turn back to Isaiah 39. So you've got it right here within a few pages. Two examples. Isaiah 39, 3-8. through Hezekiah did something very stupid at the end of his reign. God gave him extra years. And... Uh, he was faithful to the Lord but he did something very foolish. We do foolish things. We open our mouths sometimes when we shouldn't. We open our mouths and we go meet with homeschool people when we don't have to. We open our mouths with the government when we don't have to. We open our mouths with other Christians about things that we don't need to be talking about. That's what happened with Hezekiah here. This is a good lesson in how we should spare our words. You see, we're not to lie or be deceptive, but we are told to spare our words. So sometimes we can give out too much information. We should be careful, especially in these days. But listen to this, chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, so this was long before Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon wasn't even a kingdom, Assyria was in control, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of the precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor. And all that was found in his treasures, there was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. In other words, come let me show you my kingdom. These were just ambassadors from a little kingdom called Babylon. No power, not a lot of say-so in the Middle East. Assyria was the big man. Hezekiah had stood up to the king of Assyria. God had overthrown the army. But Babylon wasn't much of a kingdom. Babylon would have been kind of like, in that time, would have kind of been like America when it first got its independence from England. It didn't have a lot to say-so in the world. Not very important. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and all that, that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord, and thy sons that shall issue from thee which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. What do I care? It's kind of funny. But so you have this insignificant kingdom that sent ambassadors to Jerusalem. Hezekiah showed them everything. And then you have a prophecy that says the day is coming when this mighty, this kingdom will Carry your sons away and take everything from this city. Now that was written also about 120 years before it happened. 120 years before it happened. That would be like someone in 1900 or 1895 or the end of the Civil War prophesying that the day would come when America would simultaneously invade Iraq and Afghanistan as a response to an attack on some buildings in New York City that would be like someone from the late eighteen hundreds claiming that and then it comes to pass in a time when Iraq as a nation didn't exist Afghanistan was a was a territory in the British Empire when they even know what a skyscraper or an airplane was that would be like a comparative thing. So here you have a prophecy, another 120-year-old prophecy, very specific. What happened? Read Daniel 1. Nebuchadnezzar came, king of Babylon, sacked the city, carried away people, made them eunuchs. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were eunuchs, folks. Pro- king probably had them castrated. That's what they did. They were probably very feminine because they'd been castrated. But they were, but they were honorable and served the Lord nonetheless. Probably what happened, they were eunuchs. The city was burned. The temple was destroyed 586 B.C. So God declares the end from the beginning. Guys, there's two specific examples right there in Isaiah, right before this statement is ushered. So we can believe that God knows what He's talking about. Not only with regard to Israel, but with regard to the church. These things written here in Isaiah were fulfilled literally. So shall it be with the church, Israel, The last days, the second coming, the millennium. Literal and to the minutest detail. That's why we need to be students of prophecy. That's why we need to be like those children of Issachar in the Old Testament who had knowledge concerning the times. That's why we should plan and live as pilgrims, not tied to this world. Not afraid of evil tidings, but trusting in the Lord. Laodicea is 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia about 40 miles east of Ephesus, on the road to the city of Colossae. That's where the letter to the Colossians was written by Paul. The interesting thing is if you look geographically at where these seven churches were, what, where is Christ seen standing in terms of the seven churches in Revelation 1? In the middle. They're candlesticks, so they would have been shaped like what if He was standing in the middle? A circle. If you look geographically... Laodicea completes the circle. It starts with Ephesus. It moves north, east, comes back south, comes to Laodicea, and then Laodicea is connected to Ephesus on a road. It's a circle geographically and spiritually. Christ is in the middle of the seven churches. Those seven churches represent all that the church is, can be, was, and will be in this church age. And Christ is in the middle and He knows all things. Not only spiritually, But literally, geographically, this was the case. Now how in the world could John have known that with the limited travel and stuff in those days? How in the world could he have just decided one day to make up something and make it all fit not only spiritually but geographically? Supernatural fingerprints on the Word of God. This wasn't random. It's not random that Christ chose these seven churches that were in a geographical circle. It wasn't random because it points to the fact that Christ is in the midst of the church, or what claims to be the church. He's in the midst. It's a circle. He's in the midst. And He sees and knows all. It's not random. These things aren't random. One of the most interesting things I've ever found in the Scriptures, after this same vein, is a passage in the book of Amos, chapter 5, verse 8. Here it is that God, the prophet, says for us to seek God... Who maketh Orion, the constellation Orion and the seven stars? the Pleiades, it's called elsewhere in the scripture. Have you ever looked in the night sky and seen the Pleiades? You know what I'm talking about? It's a little cluster of stars. And if you look real hard, five of them are very obvious. The sixth one is very faint. So if you're in a place with very little light pollution, you can see six, but you won't see seven stars with the naked eye. There are seven in that cluster. You can see it with a telescope. But the Pleiades, God made them. The Hebrew word is a reference to that constellation. And when it's translated here in Amos 5.8, it's translated the seven stars in English. How was it that Amos knew that the Pleiades had seven stars? When you don't know that with the naked eye? In fact, if you look at the constellation Pleiades, as talked about by the Greeks... In others, it was considered a cluster of six stars, but yet in the Bible, it's called the seven stars. With the invention of the telescope, we see that this constellation has seven stars. How in the world could a shepherd from Tekoa in Israel, a picker of sycamore fruit, have known that God created the Pleiades with seven stars, unless God supernaturally revealed it to him? How is that possible? These things aren't random. The Bible is, cover, is filled from cover to cover with supernatural fingerprints. The letters to the seven churches are a supernatural fingerprint. A geographical circle, a spiritual circle, church history that comes full circle. History that comes full circle. Babel to Babel. Noah to Christ. Full circle. None of this is random. Laodicea was a very wealthy and profitable city under Roman rule. What's interesting is it was known for three things that made it rich. Wool clothing, medicine, and the banking industry. That's what Laodicea was known for. Now as we get later into the Scripture and see what Christ exhorts the church to do, look at His counsel. He exhorts them to possess real gold. True raiment, true clothing, true medicine. So you even have a tie to, to the city historically, the three things the city was known for. Christ exhorts the church to seek real things that can't be fulfilled in the, the money, the raiment, and the, and, and the uh, medicine of this world. How could John have known all that and just randomly wrote it and tied it together? It's amazing. In A.D. 60, Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. The emperor Nero offered to help the city rebuild and to send aid to the city of Laodicea, but they refused the aid. They said, we don't want your help. We're going to do it ourselves. We don't need you. Self-sufficiency. It's kind of funny. The city was in ruins, but we don't want the emperor's help. The church today is in ruins, but we don't want Jesus' help. He's on the outside knocking. Self-sufficiency has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. It has no place in our lives. Self has no place. I can't stand that translation in modern versions in the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. It's not self-control. It's temperance. Temperance is under the authority of the Holy Ghost, not under the authority of the self. There's no place for self-sufficiency in the church. We need Christ-sufficiency. But in Laodicea... The city, Nero, was on the outside. Laodicea, the church, Christ is on the outside. Isn't it interesting how history, none of this is random. just wasn't a random church. The history of Laodicea played out in the church of Laodicea. Very interesting. This city was a home of many Jewish people. It was a pagan worship center. Cicero, that great historian and poet, wrote many of his writings from Laodicea. It was a mishmash. Politically, it was a mishmash culturally, it was a mishmash in terms of religion. It was known, people often called it the city of compromise in ancient times. Isn't that exactly what the church is today? A mishmash of everything we like. In those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. What book was that written in in the Old Testament? Judges. In those days there was no Christ in the church and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Laodicea, a mishmash in history. The Laodicean church, a mishmash of man-centered churchianity. The The city of compromise, the church of compromise. Now the church actually in history is mentioned as late as the 1300s. So there was a church that survived in Laodicea as late as the 1300s. Today, the city and the church are in complete ruins. It's not, a, it's not a city anymore. It's just a site, of an archaeological site. Ruins. The inevitable end of man. We can build these cities. We can build these temples. I noticed traveling around America, Ricky noticed this too, almost every college campus we went to, there was some major construction project going on. Why is it? Where are these colleges getting the money to build? Some of the buildings we saw just amazed me at what they're making available to these students. Where is the money coming from? Why is it being poured into these institutions? It's being poured into these institutions because they, they are the temples of the American religion. They are the houses of the false gods that we worship in this country. They are being outfitted as the temples that control the minds and the wills of the American people. That's why the money's being poured in, but we can build. We can make the buildings like they've done at UTEP look beautiful, like the Potala Palace and the Buddhist buildings in Tibet. It's funny, they all love the Tibetans and the Tibetan culture, but when it came to preaching the gospel on their campus, they acted like the communist Chinese. You can't say these things here. Kind of an interesting contradiction. But you can build these things, you can build a tower to heaven, but the inevitable end of man is ruin. The inevitable end of the physical church in Laodicea was ruined. The inevitable end of the city was ruined. The inevitable end of what is American churchianity and the American government is ruined. Another one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, Psalm 39.5. I preach from this on the streets a lot too. 39.5 Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before thee, Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Man in his best state is altogether vanity and ruin. Yet the Word of God endures forever. An amazing testimony. Laodicea, unlike some of the other churches, is actually mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay? Of these churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis... Philadelphia and Ephesus, which ones are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament? Not very many. Ephesus, right? There's a book. Where's the only... Remember Thyatira, it's only mentioned very slightly. Anybody remember? Who was from Thyatira? Lydia, the first convert in in, in the Western world. And then we have Laodicea. It's mentioned elsewhere in the Scriptures, primarily in the book of Colossians. Colossians was one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote it from prison. Just like Ephesians and Philemon. A prison epistle when he was in prison the first time under Nero. And in Colossians 2 verse 1, Laodicea or the church at Laodicea was mentioned by Paul. Listen to what he says here. Colossians 2 1. For I would know, you know, that what what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul had a burden not only for the church at Colossae, Colossi, but the church at Laodicea. And many of these Christians, he'd never even met face to face. Yet he loved them and had a burden for them and was able to minister to them. So Laodicea benefited from the ministry of Paul even though he probably never even visited there or met those people face to face. He interacted and ministered to those that he didn't even have the privilege of meeting in this earth. Shouldn't that be a part of our ministry? People say, well, you've got to build relationships with people to do evangelism. You can't be out here preaching to people you don't know. Well, Paul demonstrates a ministry that not only ministered to people he interacted with, but people he never even met. And what do we? We live in a day where we have internet, we have Facebook, we have email, we have Skype, we have the ability to travel in ways we've never been able to do before. Why are we so focused on pe- only on the people we know? Why not the great masses of humanity? Why not the Christians around the world that are suffering that we'll never see face to face in this flesh, but we'll have eternity with them? Why aren't we burdened to pray for them? Why aren't we burdened to minister to them when our brethren are in prison or in need? Why aren't we burdened to interact? And be an encouragement to them. Paul was. This is an important element of ministry. I have seen it with our own ministry. How God has used... Well, I've spent so many hours trying to use the internet as a means to communicate the gospel. Thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing? And then little do I know, there's somebody in Western Australia. Or there's someone in, in uh, Bhutan. Or there's someone here that's ministered to by that website. Brethren people that we're able to send materials to so they can get Scripture portions into the hands of their people. When I was just traveling on the road on this campus trip, I got a very strange call from a U.S. soldier stationed in Qatar, which is just our cutter, just outside of Iraq. And he entered Nepali Bible into Google. And guess whose website came up first? Mine. He called me. He said, Look, I'm a Christian. I'm serving the U.S. military. There are a lot of Nepalis that work on this base Doing manual labor, and I really want to try to share the gospel. Can you send me some Nepali materials? Because I can't speak their language. So, well, sure. Just let me get back home. I sent those out this week to this man who has a burden to reach out to the Nepalis on his base. Now, as I was investigating how to send this with the U.S. Postal Service, an APO address is a military address. It works just like a U.S. address, the same cost of postage. It says, these things are prohibited to send to military addresses. One of those religious materials that would be deemed offensive to Islam is prohibited to send by U.S. mail to an APO address. Isn't that amazing? That's the wicked, filthy, reprobate nation we live in today. Not God bless America. I won't say what needs to be said, but not God bless America. So I'm not allowed to send religious material that might be offensive to Islam. Well, not allowed to take gospel materials into Tibet. We did it, didn't we, Ricky? We did it. The cops even saw it. You weren't allowed to take Bibles into Soviet Russia, but praise God for those that did. I met a Lutheran pastor in northern Russia who was one of the people checking bags coming across the border. He confiscated a Bible and he came to Christ. We ought to obey God rather than men. But praise God how he used just a little website to get some Nepali scriptures, So let's be praying that those get there. Man, I just... Fortunately, American troops and American officers and Middle Eastern Muslims and Arabs can't read Nepali. So, let's pray that they get there. But that's an example of how we can minister to the brethren that we won't even meet face to face. Paul did it. Why aren't we using our Facebook pages to communicate the Gospel? As a Christian, that ought to be at least what we use them for. We talk about so much stuff that means nothing, and it's okay to have a good time and to interact. But if there's no Christ, if there's no gospel, if there's no ministering to the brethren in Facebook, you might as well shut it down if you're a Christian. We can minister not only to each other, friends, but we can have a profound impact on people we'll never see. Laodicea benefited from the ministry of Paul even though he probably never even went there. In Colossians 4, and I'll finish up here. In Colossians 4, verses 12 and 13, we have this mentioned again. Epaphras, which is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, that is the church at Colossae, the Colossians, and for them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Epaphras is the one, I believe, that helped plant these churches, particularly Laodicea in Hierapolis where Paul had not visited. Epaphras was a church planter. It was a church planter discipled by Paul that planted this church. What did Paul do? He preached the Gospel in the public forum. What did Paul do? He made disciples. What did Paul do? He made disciples that planted churches that were around 60 years later when John was still living. 50, 60 years later, they were not not that long. 40 years later. Still around. Paul preached the Gospel, made disciples that that planted churches. Isn't that the way it should be? Paul was willing to delegate spiritual authority to the nationals. To train them and delegate it. He didn't go around as a pope exerting control over all these churches. He delegated it. There wasn't any paternalism in his missions like there is today. There was partnership. There was partnership. This verse right here is the lessons in missiology, how we ought to be conducting missions. I was amazed. We were on a college campus, University of San Diego, preaching the gospel, preaching the love of God, and this boy came up, thought because he had a beard on he was a man, thought because he was in some Christian group that he was going to lecture us on ministry. He was still wet behind the ears. He was still so young. But he sat here and said, the problem I have with you guys is you don't make disciples. That's what he said to my face. He said, you don't know me, sir. I just walked away. I said, Ricky, I need you to do me a favor. I said, this man over here, or thinks he's a man, accused me of not making disciples. I said, I think it would be especially potent if you yourself would go correct his misunderstanding. So Ricky went over there and made sure he understood that I do make disciples. And he was looking at one. Not a disciple for me, but a disciple for Christ. And what did the man do? He started screaming and he knocked the Bible out of Ricky's hand and the demon came out. The demon that was in him. Not the Spirit of Christ, but the demon. You see, it's funny how you can make disciples and the church still says you don't do it. You know, we don't answer to them, we answer to God. Praise God that He's allowed us to be a part of a ministry that makes disciples. And when you make disciples, you're happy when your disciples exceed your zeal and exceed your knowledge and then turn around and teach you. That's the way missions is to be. That's the way missions is to be. Making disciples, not paternalism. And then finally you have Laodicea mentioned again in Colossians 4, 15 and 16. So it's all right here in the book. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus, And guess what? and the church which is in his what? House. House church, not a big building. And when this epistle, that is Colossians, is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So friends, when Paul wrote these epistles, he wasn't just writing to one church. He wanted these epistles to be read in other churches because they were authoritative on the church as a whole. They may have been written to address specific circumstances, but they were authoritative over all the churches. So Paul asked that they would read this epistle to Laodicea as if it was written to them, and that the epistle written to Laodicea would be read to Colossae Colossae, just as if it was written to them. What is this epistle to Laodicea? We don't see a book in the New Testament called Laodicea. Actually, this is probably a reference to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus, and there's some, some historical things that would indicate it was also written to Laodicea after the same manner that Colossians was written. And so those near Laodicea would have known it as the epistle to Laodicea, whereas those close to Ephesus would have known it as the epistle of, 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 to the Ephesians. So this is a reference to the book of Ephesians. Paul wanted the book of Ephesians read in the church at Colossians. He wanted the book of Colossians read in the church at Laodicea. Isn't that interesting? And it's funny when you look at the geography Ephesus, Laodicea and Colossae as well as Hierapolis. They were all kind of along the same one of the same a major route, a major trade route. So it makes sense. These epistles were written and they were to be passed along to the churches and what happened? They were copied and they were preserved and the evidence that they were of God and of God the Holy Spirit was in the preservation. The proof was there. The epistles that is Romans all the way up through 3 John and Jude, were written for the church in the church age. They are a binding authority in all true churches. Specific instructions for the church living in the time from Pentecost to the rapture. That's what they are. So why in the world are we not studying the epistles? Why in the world do we somehow think that the red letters in the gospels have more authority than the words of Paul who wrote under the same inspiration of the Holy Ghost. If anything, we as a church ought to have our face in these epistles so we know how to conduct ourselves. And yet the church today somehow thinks the Sermon on the Mount, which was spoken to Jewish people concerning a Jewish messianic kingdom, somehow has more authority than the epistles. Things have to be interpreted in their context, my friend. We interpret Scripture with which with what is written directly to us. It doesn't mean that the principles aren't there. The the Sermon on the Mount is full of principles that we need to apply and that agree with the instruction given to us in the epistles. But if we're ignoring the writings of Paul and lifting up another part of Scripture, we're going to find ourselves wrongfully interpreting it. We're going to find ourselves in doctrinal error. These epistles had authority and they were meant to be read in the churches. And Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the same Jesus who spoke the words written in the Gospels. God breathed. Some people claim that the Bible was decided by some church council in Nicaea in A.D. 325. Most people that say that don't know what they're talking about. It wasn't Nicaea that affirmed the canon of Scripture. It was the council of Carthage. In AD 397, but 30 years before that council, there was a a leading pastor named Athanasius who wrote a letter at Easter time to a lot of the churches. And in this letter of Athanasius, he lists the same 27-book canon of the New Testament that we have today. And he speaks of it as something that had been established and accepted for quite some time. The only reason why Carthage approved this canon is because it had become consensus in the churches. It takes a long time for something to be consensus, friends. It doesn't happen overnight. So the Christians were believing and reading these books under the divine hand of providence long before a church decided what was right. These councils only affirmed what had already been accepted by the churches by the divine hand of providence. What was endorsed was consensus. So if anybody tells you the Bible didn't come into being in the New Testament until the 300s, they don't have any clue about history. What was in, it was endorsed what had become consensus, but the preservation was the proof. The preservation of the Scriptures is the proof, friends. They found a fragment from, I believe it's Matthew's Gospel, one of the oldest surviving fragments of the New Testament. And interestingly, it preserves a portion of the verse that has a variant reading between the traditional text of the King James and the modern text. This is one of the oldest fragments in existence, a variant reading. And they date it to around A.D. 67, maybe. I think it's called the Magdalene Papyrus. Three guesses as to how it reads, and the first two don't count. How does it read? Does it read like the text of the King James or the text of the modern versions? Three guesses, and the first two don't count. Exactly. 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 It wasn't until 1439 that the movable printing press was invented. Johannes Gutenberg. What was the first book ever printed on a movable type printing press? The Holy Bible. So you're going to tell me that the preservation of the Scriptures for 1400 years from the time of its completion, 1300 years where there was no printing press, but it was only through handwriting and copying are you going to tell me that the abundance of manuscripts that read the same thing is not evidence of supernatural action? If you can say that, then you're a fool. You're a bigger fool than you, than you could... Than, than, I mean, you're, you're, you're as big a fool as there can be. As big of a fool as one that denies the existence of God. Supernatural fingerprints. The Bible was the first book ever printed on the printing press and it's the best-selling book of all time. This can't be said of the Quran or the Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita, and to claim this is just another religious book is profound ignorance. It's willful ignorance. those that suppress the truth in righteousness, as it says. And unfortunately, the church at Laodicea, one of its problems, is that it suppresses the truth in righteous, in, un- in unrighteousness, excuse me, in unrighteousness. There was no commendation given to this church. It's a condemning letter. It's very interesting what Laodicea was historically, how this bears testimony to the supernatural power of God's Word to declare the end from the beginning. It's interesting how this church was involved in the ministry of Paul and the lessons we could learn in terms of missions. That's a whole other sermon. But we need to turn now to the letter itself. And that's where I'm going to pick up next week. So just uh, meditate on this passage of Scripture this week, what Jesus has to say. And I want you in particular, this is your assignment, Jesus says here to the church, I would that you're were. you not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. Okay, there's one way I always hear that talked about. Jesus would rather you be on fire for the Lord or dead to the things of the Lord as opposed to lukewarm. I don't believe that's necessarily the right interpretation. I don't think Christ wants us to be dead because He rebuked the Sardis church for being dead. So I don't think hot and cold is necessarily a reference to fervor and deadness. I think there might be something else being talked about. So just think about that. Think about water. What does hot water minister to in your body? How does it minister to you? How does cold water minister to you? What does it mean for a church to be hot and cold? I want you to just meditate on that. Pray through that scripture this week and see what God shows you. We want to make sure we interpret things correctly and that we strive to be a church that is exactly what Christ wants us to be. If He wants us to be hot or cold, then perhaps cold doesn't mean dead. Maybe it means something else. And maybe we need to be hot and cold, not hot or cold, and definitely not lukewarm. Okay? Something to think about. Something to think about. Any questions before we finish today? We're going to just keep doing this. I don't know. We'll probably have a few special services when it gets time for Christmas or whatever. So that'll be fine. Um, But I look forward to getting out of the church age into the things which shall be hereafter. And I promise you, before we're done, we will cover an entire chapter in a single Sunday. I promise. It'll happen. It'll happen. All right. um, Let's pray. And uh, we'll have the food. It's a little bit late. Thanks, guys, for behaving, kids. It was long this morning. Sorry, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time of encouragement and feasting in your Word. We pray that we would be saints, taught by your Word, ever taught by your Word, Lord. Not taught by the um, the things of this world, Lord. May we be a church that's outside of Laodicea as you are, Lord, and in you, Lord. Forgive us if we've been lukewarm. Um, forgive us for being concerned more about men than about God Lord. help us to be a light in these dark days to the remnant Lord help us to be a light to those that are wavering and Lord strengthen your church strengthen your church strengthen those that are suffering and hungry Lord help us to be a minister to them some way Lord ways that we can't even understand with the resources you've given us we pray that this food would be uh, nourishing for us today that you would bless the fellowship We pray for those that are sick and not with us that You will heal them. Well, we pray for unity in this body. Um, In Christ's precious name, Amen.